Our scripture reading this morning is Psalm 57. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man, whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory, awake, O harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Let me just get set up here. If I could handle the hardware, I'd be just fine. So, about six weeks ago, I had the opportunity to drive through the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. And when I got to the North Carolina side near the ranger station, there was a mock-up of the kind of farm that the mountain people who lived in the mountains about 150 years ago or so would have had. And all of the buildings were original buildings. They weren't in their original location. They had all been moved there from various places throughout the mountains, and I thought it was fascinating. There was the uh, cabin, which was very small, but then there were about 10 other buildings, <clears throat> excuse me, that had various purposes. And as I read the signs, it said that the mountain people would spend 90% of their time in the production and preservation of food. We run to the grocery store. Not so for them. And as a, for example, one of the buildings was an apple house just to preserve and protect the apples. And the signs talked about how extensive a use the apples were as part of their diet and so on. So at any rate, I was fascinated by reading all this. And I came to a particular historic building that was a barn, and there was this <clears throat> bright red and white sign nailed to the side of the barn, and I hadn't seen anything else on one of these historic buildings. And it got my attention because it said, Bob was here. <laughs> So I read what came next. It said, Bob visited the Great Smoky Mountains, and he saw these historic buildings, and he liked this particular building so much that Bob wrote his name on it. Bob was fined $100. Bob could have been fined $5,000 and sent to jail for six months. Don't be like Bob. <laughs> so if you need a title for today's message, that would be a pretty good one. <clears throat> some 10 or 15 years ago, I can't remember exactly when it was, some dear friends of ours who are long-term missionaries were visiting. 
And I came home from work that day, and I was extremely upset about something. I don't remember what it was. It was probably a case that I was handling, but I was extremely anxious, and I just started pouring out everything that was terrible that was going on that I couldn't handle, and I don't know what I expected. Maybe I expected sympathy. Maybe I expected uh, advice. Uh, but that's not what our friends did. They looked at me and said, Oh, what a terrible burden you are carrying. Let us come and lay our hands on you and pray that God would take this terrible burden off your shoulders. And I thought, maybe you weren't listening. <laughs> That's not the problem. The problem is this terrible thing I'm dealing with. But of course, they were right. The point is that I was carrying a burden that God did not intend for me to carry. And I suspect that we all tend to do that a lot more often than we might realize. And when you really come down to it, the burdens that we carry are worry, anxiety, and fear. Now those can be caused by many things. They can be caused by finances, they can be caused by illness, relationships, work pressure, guilt, sorrow, betrayal, the list goes on and on. But it isn't those things that's the burden. It's the worry, the anxiety, and the fear which they cause. Now I'm going to ask my, uh, this is why I've chosen Psalm 57, if my two volunteers would now pass out the blue sheets. I have for you <clears throat> a breakdown of Psalm 57 to make it easier for you to follow along as we go through this and see what David did when he was going through a time of incredible stress a terrible burden that he was carrying. And you know how most of the Psalms have a title at the top, or many of them do, uh, which is not actually part of Scripture, but has been passed down throughout anti uh, from antiquity and are generally considered to be reliable. And Psalm 57 has at the top of it the words, of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. Now, if you read through the book of 1 Samuel, you'll see that there are actually two different accounts of David hiding in a cave that this could refer to. The first one is in the 22nd chapter, but in that instance, David has 400 men with him and other people are coming and going, so it doesn't seem like an urgent situation. But the one that's described in the 24th chapter of 1 Samuel was an incredibly urgent situation. And when you see the outpouring of God's heart, uh, excuse me, of David's heart here in Psalm 57, it seems highly likely that that's the situation. But even if it isn't, Psalm 57 says what it says. But let's put this in historical context. In the 24th chapter of 1 Samuel, we see a situation where... David, of course, has been anointed king by Samuel, but Saul is still king. So Saul sees David as a threat, and Saul wants to kill him. So here is David with a handful of men, we're not told how many, hiding in the back of this cave, and King Saul is right outside the entrance to the cave with 3,000 soldiers. And these soldiers have only one thing in mind, find David, kill David. I think you'll agree that was a burden that David was under at that time. So somewhere here in that incredible situation, David apparently finds the time to write Psalm 57. 
And only after he has gone through what's in that psalm does the rest of the story uh, unfold. And what happens is something I'm quite sure David did not anticipate. And isn't that the way it usually is when we pray to God for salvation? He answers our prayer, but it is almost never the way we envisioned it in our minds. So what happens in this story? Saul has to go into the cave, we're told, to relieve himself. Now, what are the chances of that? And the men who are with David say, now's your chance. You can kill him. But David says, no, I will not harm the Lord's anointed. So instead, he sneaks up on Saul, cuts off a piece of his robe, and then goes back into hiding, and Saul is oblivious, never knows that this has even happened. Saul goes back out to his 3,000 men, and then David, in an act of incredible courage, walks out of the cave by himself, prostrates himself on the ground in front of King Saul, and says, Saul, why are you trying to kill me? I would never harm the Lord's anointed. Look, I had an opportunity to kill you when you came into the cave. See the piece of your robe that I cut off? And Saul has a rare attack of conscience, says, Oh, David, you are the righteous one. I am the sinner. Takes his 3,000 men and leaves, and David is saved. That's how the story unfolds. But before it unfolds, let's take a look at Psalm 57. And if you follow along on the blue sheets, I think you'll see that David went through a number of interesting steps here which are illustrative for us. Not that there's a specific formula here, but I think it's helpful. You'll see the first thing that David does is he cries out to God for mercy. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. And isn't that the natural human reaction? And that's perfectly appropriate and perfectly good. But when we do cry out to God for mercy, it's important that we remember that God is not sitting in heaven trying to withhold his mercy and waiting for us to beg for it. Mercy is who God is. Like he is love and he is faithfulness, he is also mercy. It's a characteristic of who he is. He can't not be merciful because mercy is who he is. And he longs to show the mercy. So we need to remember that when we cry out to him for mercy. The next thing that David does is he runs to God for refuge. For in you my soul takes refuge. <clears throat> in the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. And he envisions this like little chicks running to the mother bird and the mother bird putting her wings around them to draw them in and protect them. That's the image that he has in his mind. But he realizes that after he cries out to mercy, he needs to run to God who is his true refuge. After he's done that, he acknowledges God's purpose. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me how important it is to remember that God has a purpose. Things do not happen by accident. Nowhere in the Bible are we promised 80 happy, pain-free years upon this earth. Instead, we're told that God is actively working in our lives and that he works through many very hard things that he allows us to go through because his purpose is to transform us into the people that he wants us to be so that we will be fit for our eternal home in heaven. That's what God is concerned about doing, 
not simply making us feel happy and not have any problems. So it's important when David cries out to God to realize he acknowledges that God has a purpose in this situation. Having done that, he makes a statement of faith. He says, he will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. This is what he is believing. God will save me. I don't know how, but he will do it. Not only will he save me, but he will put to shame those who are attacking me. And then having done that, he acknowledges God's basic character. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. The reason I believe that God will save me is because I know that he is steadfast love and faithfulness. And if you haven't done so before, I'd encourage you to read through the entire book of Psalms and just see how many times David and the other psalmists refer to this simple fact, God's steadfast love and his faithfulness. That seems to be the dominant thought that they have over and over again as they meditate upon God. His love is steadfast. His faithfulness does not waver. That is who he is, and that is why I can trust in him. And having done that, David quite honestly acknowledges his fear. He says, my soul is in the midst of lions. A somewhat poetic way of putting it. But he realizes that it is, the real problem isn't that his body is in danger. The real problem is that his soul is in the midst of lions. And then having said that, he declares what his present circumstances are. He says, I lie down among fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Lord, there are 3,000 soldiers outside this cave. Lord, these 3,000 soldiers are bent on one thing, and that's killing me. That's my situation, God. He declares that before him. Having done that, what does David do next? He praises God. Out comes his first outpouring of praise. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Now think about that for a minute. Is God any more exalted because we say, be exalted, O God? Is his glory any more over all the earth because we say, let your glory be over all the earth? Of course not. <clears throat> God's exalted and his glory covers the earth whether we say so or not. So what's going on here? Well, probably a lot of things. But one thing is that David is aligning himself. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Back when I was in Boy Scouts years and years ago, one of the favorite things that I did was called orienteering. And orienteering is basically finding your way through a wilderness area with nothing more than a topographical map and a compass. I thought this was a ton of fun. I remember, for example, one camping trip where my son was with the scouts. I had to arrive late to this large wilderness area, and I had nothing more than a topographical map that had a dot on it where the troop would be. There were no trails to follow. So I had the topographical map and I had a compass. Now, if you remember the old, not the electronic compasses you see today, but the old kind that had the floating metal needle, you would lie it flat and the needle would point towards magnetic north, seven degrees off of true north. And once you set it up so it was pointing in that direction, then you would turn the dial so that 
the north marking on the dial would line up with the needle, and then and only then would you know which direction was east, west, or south. In other words, aligning the compass was how you began to know which way to go. I think praise is the same thing as aligning a compass. Whenever we praise God, we are aligning ourselves with who He is so that our north will point towards His true north. And then and only then do we know which direction to go. Then and only then can we read the map. And so that's what David does here. He cries out his praise to God. Having done that, now notice he states his circumstances in the past tense. Before praising God, he stated them in the present tense. But here he says, they set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. Notice it's all in the past tense. It hasn't happened yet. He hasn't received the salvation that was coming from God, but his faith is such that he now declares it in the past tense. Then he enters into a section that I call the struggle with the will because he has to struggle with himself as he goes through this. And the first thing he does is make his heart steadfast. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. You see the sense in which he's saying, I will be steadfast. I will plant my feet. I will believe. I will not move. And having done that, the next thing he does is the first of three statements using the words, I will or I've made a decision, this is what I'm going to do. And the decision he makes is that he is going to sing and make melody. Can you just see him in the back of the cave in this situation, starting to sing praises to God once he's made up his mind that that was what he will do? And after that, we see what we may call the awakening. Awake my glory, which in this situation means my whole being. Awake my whole being. Awake, O harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. So he comes to a point where it's like waking up in the morning. Suddenly the sun is out. Suddenly he can see. Now he has awakened as he's gone through this process. And then we find two more I will statements. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples, and I will sing praises to you among the nations. He's made up his mind what he's going to do, and he's going to do it publicly. I'm going to give thanksgiving publicly. I'm going to sing praises publicly. And then he states, again, the reason for the choice, which is a restatement of God's character. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. And then finally, he ends by the same outpouring of praise for a second time. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory over all the earth. So I think you can see the step that he had to go through in this terrible time of stress and burden he was facing that brought him to the point of victory where then God answered his prayer and lo and behold, Saul walks into the cave alone. Now let's look at the New Testament. <clears throat> You're probably thinking <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> of the most obvious verse in the New Testament on this subject, which is Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, where Jesus said the following, Come to me, 
all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, just to be clear, since I don't think there's very many farmers in this room as to what a yoke is, here's the dictionary definition. A device for joining together a pair of draft animals, especially oxen, usually consisting of a cross piece with two bow-shaped pieces, each enclosing the head of an animal. In other words, when one animal is pulling a heavy wagon or a heavy burden, what ties that animal to the wagon is called a harness, not a yoke. The whole purpose of a yoke is when you join two animals together. That's the purpose, so that they can pull together. Now, with that in mind, let's take a closer look at these couple of verses. The first thing to note is that Jesus said, come to me. That's the first thing to realize when we're under a heavy burden. Go to Jesus. Don't sit there and struggle with it. Don't tell everyone how bad it is. Don't enjoy complaining about it. Get up and go. The sooner we get up and go to Jesus, the sooner we will have dealt with the problem. Secondly, note that Jesus joins weariness and burdens together. Weariness is a burden, and burdens make us weary. And that's the way it is, and he recognizes that. Third, the promise of Jesus is that he will give us rest if we will come to him. Now I ask you, how much do we desire real rest, true rest, soul rest? Fourth, when we take his yoke upon us, it means that we're willing to pull whatever the weight may be. We're not running away from it. We're not trying to escape we are responsibly pulling that weight. The truth is that rest is not found in sipping a tropical drink on some Caribbean beach somewhere. Burdens follow with you wherever you go. They have to be dealt with. They cannot be escaped. The burdens are still there, and they're hard to put out of mind. But when we take on the yoke of Jesus, we're not avoiding the burden, we're pulling the burden. And that's the secret of true rest found. We do not release burdens by running away from them. We release them by replacing them, by taking the yoke of Jesus, his burden, what is important to him, that is the replacement. Fifth, Jesus says, learn from me. In other words, there's something about this act of pulling together with him which is instructional. We learn from him as we do so. Sixth, Anyone who has done this has very quickly discovered the truth is Jesus is the one doing all the pulling. But he doesn't pull unless we are yoked to him. We should not expect or ask him to pull without us. He wants us to pull with him, and only with him can we be successful in doing so. Seventh, we discover also the incredible gentleness of Jesus in this. He says he is gentle. He is kind. There's something incredibly beautiful about experiencing the gentleness and the kindness of Christ when we are in the act of pulling that burden with him. 
Eighth, Jesus says he is humble in heart. Now, how are we to understand that? He is God, the creator of the universe. How can he be humble? Well, that's a difficult question. I don't really know. I'm content to leave that one to the theologians. But one thing I think is in that is that pulling with him means that we experience humility. We must stop the pride which says, I can do this. No, you can't. Jesus told his disciples, for the plain fact is that apart from me, you can do nothing at all. Until we realize that we can do nothing without him, we will not have the victory of doing everything with him. Ninth, he repeats the promise of rest, but this time he specifically says rest for the soul. Isn't that what we really seek? Not body rest, but true soul rest. And lastly, if we pull, we will be frustrated and we will fail. We simply cannot do it. But if we yoke up with Jesus, we find that not only can we do it, but there is an easiness, a lightness, he says, even as we're pulling. And we will pull successfully. We will not fail. Now, I said earlier, most of our burdens come down to worry, anxiety, and fear, and not the things which causes them. Jesus actually had a lot to say about the problem of worry, anxiety, and fear. For example, he says in Matthew chapter 6, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body or what you will wear. Did you realize that not worrying is a command? It's not just a good idea. It's not a principle of wisdom. It's a command. Don't do it, is what he says. In fact, I would suggest that God's people properly should be distinguished from the people of this world by the fact that we do not worry. We should not be alike them in worry. We should be different from them. We should be the ones who do not worry. And in verse 27 of Matthew Matthew 6, Jesus makes this incredibly simple logical statement. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Well, try to get around the logic of that one. Logic here is inescapable. Worry does not solve problems. Worry may shorten your life, but worry will not lengthen your life. And in verse 32, he says, For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Isn't this what the people of this world are doing all the time? They're trying to get more things because they're terribly afraid that they won't have enough things. So they spend their entire life gathering things. And what happens? They die with a lot of things. We should not be like that. We should trust that God knows what we need and he will provide what we need. In the 10th chapter of Matthew, we have the incident where Jesus sent his 12 disciples out to preach the good news of the coming of the kingdom of God and to heal people. And he gives them the specific instruction not to take any provisions with them. He wants them to learn to trust God entirely to provide for him. 
And while he's explaining this to him, that he wants them to the twelve, that he wants them to go out trusting him entirely and not taking provisions, he says to them, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from the will of your father. Even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. And back in Matthew 6, we see a similar thing where he's also thinking about birds. He says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And so we see that the real reason that we are not to worry is because of our value. God says we have inestimable inestimable value, I'll get that word out, in his eyes. Now, I'll tell you, in all honesty, I've never really gotten my head about this. I, I, I tend to think of myself as not being of much value. But that is not God speaking into my ear. What God says is that each and every one of us is of tremendous value in his eyes. And that's why we should trust that he will take care of us and that we ought not to worry. We ought not to be afraid. God gave me children and grandchildren, I believe, just to help me to understand this. How much I love them. How much I want to protect them and provide for them. That's the way he feels about us. And that's why we ought not to worry. Now, there's a lot more that could be said about this because there's a lot of scripture about this. But we don't have the time, so let me just hit three points rather quickly. I don't think that's me, is it? Okay. Okay. I'm glad it wasn't my phone. Then you'd know what my ringtone was. Okay. In Galatians 6.2, Paul says this, Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Well, we could talk a lot about that what Jesus meant by the fulfillment of the law. But he says here, you want to do everything that God requires you to do for each other? It comes down to this. Carry each other's burdens. Do you see your brother in Christ carrying a heavy burden? Go help him carry it. And if you do that, then you're fulfilling the law of God by doing so. In 1 Peter 5, 7, Peter, who was a fisherman, says, cast all your anxiety upon him, for he cares for you. Now, cast is a very important word for a fisherman. You remember that on the Sea of Galilee, they fished by casting these huge, heavy nets out into the water to fall down and capture the fish. Well, I don't know if you've ever tried to do that, but let me tell you, it's a very difficult thing to do. It requires a lot of strength. It requires a lot of skill. It requires a lot of practice. That's the word Peter chose. Casting your anxieties upon God is something that takes practice. It takes learning. It takes skill. And then lastly, you're probably also thinking of Philippians 4, 6-7, which we could spend lots of time talking about, but I'll just read it without saying anything specifically about it. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, 
Present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So in conclusion, don't be like Bob. (laughs) Don't carry burdens that God did not intend for you to carry. Let them go. Release them. Cast them upon Him. Let Him pull the burden with you and for you. God does not intend that His people should suffer under great weights and burdens. He intends that we release those and be free. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You for the richness of Your Word. I thank You for the many things You say to us. Lord, You know that as typical human beings, we run into all kinds of struggles in our lives. So many things seem like heavy burdens to us. So many things make us worry, make us feel anxious, make us afraid. Lord God, forgive us for carrying those burdens when you do not want us to carry them. Help us to remember that we are of great value in your eyes and that you are our Father and that you long to care for us and that you have promised to provide for us. We release these things to you and we pray that you would help us always to cast our burdens on you, to accept your rest, that deep soul rest, and your salvation from whatever the struggles we may have on any particular day. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.